0: Welcome to mini-episode uh, number 161. Our topic is rejection, and uh, our guest, again, is uh, Guy Winch, Ph.D. He's a clinical psychologist, and he has a book out called Emotional First Aid. He's going to share some tips with us. Uh, first, I want to read a couple of uh, surveys that deal with uh, either self-rejection or rejection by, by other people. And um, this first one is from the Body Shame uh, Survey filled out by... Uh, transgendered uh, female to male um, who calls uh, himself Cade and Cade writes I hate my breasts they are disgusting and I want them gone if I could just cut them off myself like removing a tag on a new shirt I would I feel awful about it but sometimes I think it would be okay if I got breast cancer because then I would have a reason to get rid of them I was sexually abused by my dad, and he always made a big deal out of them, constantly trying to see them and touch them. I've always felt like a guy and in the wrong body, but the main reason I want to transition is so my dad doesn't find me attractive anymore. That is intense, and I'm sending you a big hug. Um, This is from the Shame and Secret survey, uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Scott. He is straight. He's 32 years old, raised in a stable and safe environment, Uh, never been sexually abused, uh, has been emotionally abused. Uh, My ex-wife ignored me and belittled my presence to the point that I sometimes truly wondered if I even existed anymore. I would have these weird moments where, spoiler alert, I felt like Bruce Willis' character in The Sixth Sense, and I was almost certain that I had died and just didn't know it yet. The harder I fought for her attention, the more she pushed me away, which led to arguments of rather epic proportions, often culminating in her hitting me, kicking me, throwing something at me, slamming doors on me, etc. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Absolutely. She was my wife for nearly a decade. I have a treasure trove of wonderful memories about her. It's hard for me sometimes to think about her abuse and neglect realistically because it doesn't seem possible that this woman who stole my heart and loved me so beautifully could be the same woman who once broke my hand, who caused me to need stitches on more than one occasion, and who completely destroyed my sense of self-worth. I know better, but I can't help but wonder if I'm exaggerating her behaviors or even flat out making things up. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I sometimes wish my ex-wife would find a horribly abusive man and marry him so that he can beat and belittle and abuse her. And when she does, I want to come around and watch and tell her that she deserves it. Deepest darkest Secrets. I think I've pretty much covered it, but I lived as an abused husband for a number of years. My petite, pretty, charming wife beat the shit out of me on a regular basis and I never said a fucking word to anyone about it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you? Pretty vanilla on this issue. I just want a partner who wants me, cares about me, and lets me know that they are choosing me and not just tolerating me. That is actually one of the most normal things I have, I think. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my ex-wife that she was wrong about me. I want her to know that she mistreated me and she hurt me and she damaged me in a lot of ways. I'd like to tell her that I have value and that she fucked up when she lost me. What if anything do you wish for? I just want to be happy again and to not wish that every day was the last one. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared them with my therapist. She's very supportive and we're making progress. I've tried to share them with friends but I don't anymore. At some point it just feels like I'm playing the poor me card and I don't much care for the sensation of patheticness that it stirs in me. If I get really deep and try to talk about my depression or anger I think it scares them. How do you feel after writing this down? Like a whiny little bitch. Half joke, half serious. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you're being mistreated or minimized, get the fuck out. There's a whole world out there, and it's full of people who will give a shit about you. Thank you for that, Scott. This is, uh, again, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a um, woman who calls herself Tori. She is straight. She's 19. She was raised in a stable and safe environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I had strong feelings for another man while I was in a relationship with my boyfriend. The other man had feelings for me as well. He was one of my best friends, so I spent a good amount of time with him. I didn't have any intentions of cheating on my boyfriend. I felt I had self-control, and even though I had feelings for the man, I knew that I wouldn't try anything with him. However, he tried stuff with me, and we had sex even though I begged him to stop. He kept asking me if he should stop or if I wanted him to stop. This question still confuses me because it should not matter if I wanted it or not. I was telling him to stop. Um, and what a great way to articulate um, that because I think a lot of, a lot of people that were um, date-raped don't don't know what the quote-unquote rules or boundaries are or where it where it crosses into that and there there are certainly gray areas but that doesn't sound like one of them that sounds like it was a clear boundary that he you know thought he could manipulate you into into crossing um ever been physically or emotionally abused uh been emotionally abused growing up i went to a very small school I graduated with with a class of 33 people so many of us had been there since kindergarten in my class I was picked on my one closest friend would constantly go around making fun of me and telling everyone about my personal life behind my back by high school I'd figured out it was her doing it but I couldn't break ties with her because whenever I would try she would do everything in her power to guilt trip me anyway many people in my class would constantly pick on me In seventh grade, i had become fascinated with gothic gothic style, and I would often dress in black. This prompted some people in my class to tell me to, quote, go cut myself whenever I was in a negative mood. I would be told this almost daily until my sophomore year when a classmate said it to me, and I finally stood up and started yelling at him for it. I didn't practice in self-injury prior to being told to go cut myself, but after a few months of it, I broke down in a fit, crying my eyes out alone in my bedroom, sitting next to my mirror, and I decided that if that's what they wanted, if they wanted me to cut myself, then I would. It became a habit. I would do it in the most painful areas. I figured that since it seemed like no one wanted me around, that I must be a bad person, that something must be wrong with me, and I deserved as much punishment as I could get. I would cut the arches of my feet so it would hurt whenever I walked, and the crease where my arm bends so whenever I moved, I could feel pain. On top of being told to go cut myself, my classmates would also make fun of my weight. I've never had a flat, sexy stomach, but I've never been overweight either. I've always just been at the status where I could stand to lose a few pounds. Regardless, my classmates would often make fat jokes towards me. Maybe it was because I would just laugh when people made fun of me as defense that they figured it was okay. Sometimes they would moo at my insinuating that I was a cow. I've only been out of high school for a couple of years now, but I've recently been remembering a lot of the things I used to be made fun uh, of for. I had put the fact that I was often called fat by my peers in a box in my mind and left it there, but people recently questioning my insecurities have opened the box up. I'm constantly worried about my weight, and yes, I know a lot of women are, but I can never take any compliments about it. My boyfriend likes to be cute and stare at my stomach like it is a sexy part of me and it infuriates me every time. It's not a sexy part of me. It's an ugly part of me that I can never get rid of even though I've been trying for a long time. Um, You know, my thought on that is can, until you can feel that it's uh, a sexy part on you or at the very least an okay part on you, can't you accept that it's a sexy part to him? That it doesn't have to be, you know, it's like one person can like a, a color and another person um, can like a different color. Uh, any positive experiences with your abusers? no. I left that town the day I graduated, and I am immensely thankful that I only talked to a couple people from my graduating class. The main people who made fun of me are people I would not mind never seeing again. Darkest thoughts. Commonly when I'm driving, I feel urges to drive off a bridge. Sometimes I also fantasize that my boyfriend has died. I love him, but there are some things that make me want to leave the relationship, um, but I'm too scared to. If he died in some crazy freak accident, I'd be forced to be alone. Darkest Secrets I don't know that I have many dark, uh, deep secrets. I do know that I'm currently studying psychology and hopes to one day have a PhD in the subject. I tell people that I'm going into the field to help others, which is partially true, but I'm also doing it because I know there is something wrong with me, Um, but because I'm crazy stubborn, I refuse to see a therapist. Because when I was younger and started cutting myself, I asked my mother if I could see a therapist because I knew there was something wrong with me. She told me no because it would, quote, make our family look bad. Oh, my God, does that break my heart. So deep down, I'm hoping that by getting a really good grasp on the human mind, I'd be able to make myself okay. Deep down, I also know that's not really how it works, but it's one of the things I'm holding on to. Um. What would you, I don't think that sexual fantasies have have matter. I'm going to skip over that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to ask my boyfriend why he refuses to fuck me. My boyfriend and I have been together for three years, and in the past year, we've had sex once. This has taken a horrible toll on my self esteem and confidence. Uh, I've been able to ask him many times before but it still hasn't been fixed. The last time I asked, he told me that it was because I was, quote, boring in bed, which I could understand. He was my first, and I am a bit nervous when it comes to anything sexual because I'm terrified of making a wrong move or doing something wrong. You know, anybody that calls somebody else boring in bed is, in my opinion, is putting their shit on somebody else um, because, well, you know... If, if you find that person boring in bed, then fucking suggest something that you'd like to do. It sounds to me like he is unavailable, he's afraid of intimacy, and he's blaming it on you. Uh, and that may even be what he's experiencing, but um, don't, don't stand for that. You deserve better than that. What if anything do you wish for for my boyfriend to want to have sex with me? I know I could just end the relationship, but I feel like that is too easy of a solution. I want to work it out and figure it out. Boy, my... My feeling is you, you deserve physical intimacy with your partner. And unless he is working through some type of trauma um, and moving forward, if he's just stuck in, in his mind, that's how it is. You're boring in bed. Um, fucking bail. Bail. Um Have you shared these things with others? Uh, I've shared my fantasies and insecurities with my boyfriend, and he tells me that he thinks it's ridiculous how much emphasis I put on sex and my self-esteem. To me, sex is an empowering thing, and it is passionate and makes me feel like I am lovable and worth wanting. When I am constantly rejected by someone I love and I'm sexually attracted to, I automatically start trying to figure out why I'm not good enough to have sex with. It's slowly killing me, and I can feel it breaking down my spirit, but I love him And I don't want sex to be a reason I leave him. You know, the thought that pops into my mind is you're, it's almost like you've been, you've been, um, um, what is the word, um, trained, not intentionally, but trained to, to be around people that reject you reject your inner life but you stay with them your mom did it with you i mean she rejected you in a way that is so fucking profound you came to her hurting and she put her family's image above your internal pain and so it doesn't seem like that you know big of a deal for you to stay with a guy who is rejecting you in a really deep way um How do you feel after writing these things down? It hurts a lot. I want to not care and just go on my merry fucking way like he seems to do, but I can't. It isn't the feeling from sex that I want. It's the intimacy that comes with it. It's the closeness and the feeling of being loved, wanted, and sexy. I wish he understood how much it hurts me, and I wish I understood why he can't bring himself to even try. I'm sure he can't understand why he can't bring himself, but you are not going to fix him. You will only have him drag you down with himself, if he doesn't want to. If he doesn't want to get help. In uh, this last survey before we get to the, uh, the interview with with Guy Winch, um, is by a guy who calls himself um, Bob Servo. Um, he he says male, but probably a transgender female. I say male because none of the current options would be enough for me. I have a very manly build and would frankly make an ugly and disproportionate woman. Even then, some dick surgery would not be enough. I'd require the whole package and experience uh, growing up. I'm glad that a lot of people have been able to find themselves and make their outside like their inside. It's just not enough for me. Uh, he is 29, raised in a stable and safe environment despite the distant An unavailable father I've never wanted for anything material. I wasn't richy-rich, but it was very comfortable, and I always knew there would be a roof over my head and food on my plate. I guess, you know, when I asked that question, describe the environment you were raised in, I guess I mean emotionally more than uh, financially and practically. Um, He's never been sexually abused. Um, He's been emotionally abused, and uh, not sure if he's been physically abused. Uh, he writes the typical I wasn't the son my father wanted thing. He's a rich, world-famous doctor who had high plans for his jock slash doctor son, but it turned out to be a severely depressed, anxiety ridden, shut-in nerd. Whoopsie! <laughs> it wasn't a constant stream of abuse. It was actually pretty minor and passive, and I would say it does, that's not minor. Um, the absence of the boilerplates, things that kids need can be every bit as traumatic and life-changing as uh, the dad that backhands you every night at the dinner table. Um, there were moments of verbal abuse uh, after failures at jockdom, like never getting uh, merit badges as a cub and boy scout doing poorly at sports. I hated sports, but he kept signing me up for every fucking thing under the sun. This is abuse, by the way, with this, what your dad is done to you. I typed son instead of s-u-n right there that probably means something um when i wanted to take home ec classes uh or other girly classes instead of manly shit like trying out for the football team Um oh, that was just a long sentence that i read incorrectly um, there were moments of verbal abuse after failures at jockdom um when I wanted to take HOMAC uh, or other girly classes instead of manly shit like trying out for the football team. I totally would have done wood shop and metal shop, though, if they weren't shut down the year before I got to high school. The worst and most clear event of this shit-is-straight-up-not-okay abuse was the time he drove me out to the country, sat me down in an empty cornfield and shat on me for about two hours, saying things like, you'll never make anything of yourself, no woman will ever love you, etc. That was really it, though. Wow, I love how you are like not really sure, you know, if that was a big deal. I mean, that is your dad's shit in your fucking soul. Oh, I just want to give you a hug. The rest was just sort of in his demeanor and behavior, the way he looked at me when he was uh, disappointed. He worked a lot like a lot, 28-hour days, we'd say. He's a serious workaholic surgeon, always working even when he's at home, always traveling around the world to different surgical conferences. On a brighter note, I got to see so much of the world while I was growing up. We traveled a lot and when my depression allowed. I really loved it. And I'm sure he's got some serious unresolved issues, but he doesn't believe in that sort of thing, so it will remain unresolved. I don't know how to end this. I know, don't minimize. I've heard you read these things before, and you always tell people not to minimize, no matter how legitimately minor their abuse may have been. But for realsies, it was minor and mostly passive. It was not minor. It was not minor. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Not really. I never liked him and still don't at age 29. I need to forgive him and abandon my grudge, but depression loves a good grudge. And I would say that even before worrying about forgiving him and abandoning your grudge, how about working on giving yourself, feeding your soul? Um, and I think that therapy would be a great place. Uh, darkest thoughts? I, I can only... Confess so much at one time. Darkest secrets. Um, I'm not sure if this counts, but I do have a secret that I don't tell anyone that doesn't already know. I love guns. I am not a Republican. I'm not religious. I'm not a bigot or a racist. I do not want to kill children or whatever else the Democratic Party and popular media would make me out to be. I do not like Obama because he's too conservative. Uh, in the pocket of corporations, too much of a warmonger, etc. I'm questioning both my gender and parts of my sexuality, and I live in the gay neighborhood. Um, I am not the stereotypical gun owner. I just love guns. I like the mechanics of them, the history of them, the technical improvements and innovations over the centuries, taking them apart, putting them back together, shooting them, collecting them, and even, yes, carrying the one concealed for personal protection. Firearms are important to me, but I am deathly afraid of letting anyone know because of how it may change the way they may think of me or how the shitty right-wing assholes will think of me as one of their own. I moved to a new city five months ago, and I've been too crippled by depression and anxiety to venture out much. I've only met A few people through a meetup.com group and there's one girl I can't stop thinking about and I never want her to find out that I like guns because I know we're both really, really far to the left both socially and politically and that is not a safe place for a gun owner. I am ashamed that I have to be ashamed about this around people I care about and people that I want to care about me aside from those intrusive thoughts we all have of course. Sometimes I will think horrible or make a snap judgment based on the way someone looks or acts, and then I'll need to stop and correct myself for whatever horrible thing uh, came to mind. It's hard to overcome the indoctrination of the society we grew up in, but I never stopped trying to be better. You know, my thought is, if you want to talk about this gun stuff to somebody that you're getting close to, read them what you wrote here, because it makes perfect sense to me. Um. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't know. I've struggled with my sexuality and my depression has complicated things to the point where I'm a virgin at age 29 and have only been kissed once. What, if anything, do you wish for? Death, rebirth, a new life, a chance to start over in a different body. I have the month, the money to do basically whatever I want, but nothing that I really want is within the realm of possibility. If you shared these things with others, nope. I haven't really had an opportunity, though, being a shut-in and all. How do you feel after writing this down? I don't really know. I have trouble with feelings. Uh whenever I was shut down uh, a chart of smiley or frowny faces or whenever I was shown a chart of smiley or frowny faces and told to point to the one that most resembles how I felt, I could never do it because none of them quite fit. Um, yeah, that that's it. Um Thank you. Thank you very very much for that Bob. That was um that was very heartfelt and illuminating. And uh now let's get to the uh to the interview with Guy Winch. Uh we talked about rumination previously. What would be another uh, major topic uh that that you have
1: suggestions suggestions for people to deal with? Well, I think the most common psychological injury we tend to sustain is rejection. Because you know, it used to be bad enough, you know. We you know our, our spouse wouldn't uh, would rebuff our sexual advances, and our neighbors wouldn't invite us to the barbecue, and you know our colleagues would go to lunch without us. But now we have this whole arena of social media. So now, you know, we're liking our friends' uh, vacation pictures on Facebook, but they didn't like ours back, and. We feel bad, and we retweeted our friend's tweet, but they didn't retweet ours, and we feel rejected. Social media is a whole new arena for rejection, and actually people um, feel very rejected a lot of the time when, on these uh, platforms. When I see that other people
0: have been invited on uh, Facebook to something that I haven't been invited, uh, I call that getting face-fucked. mm Indeed, so there's a lot of face-fucking going on. <laughs> there is. Uh, I just and... had to add that, sorry. I like to slow things down by quoting myself. There's,
1: no, there's nothing really more indulgent and annoying than that. Go, go ahead, guys. Well, there's Twitter-fucking, there's LinkedIn-fucking, there's a whole variety of getting screwed over now on social media. But the thing that's interesting about that is when people talk to me about that, they feel two things. A, they feel the sting of the rejection, and then they feel the, the second part of that whammy is... "'What's wrong with me that that would be so upsetting?' to me, why am I such a loser that I would be so upset the fact that somebody didn't like my vacation pictures. It really bothered me, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I must really have issues. And well, they might, but my real point about it is that when we look at the science of rejection, it turns out you don't necessarily have issues. Because when scientists put people in functional MRI machines where they can actually see what's going on in the brain, and this is the study they did, which is a little talk about evil, they asked for uh, volunteers, not volunteers, they paid them but they asked for people who had recently suffered a really traumatic romantic rejection they had them bring in uh glossy eight by tens of the person who rejected them lie in the mri machine looking at the picture and replaying that rejection as they saw what happened in their brain <laughs> wow yes um i immediately went to see how much they got paid because i was terribly <laughs> curious it's not going to be the average ten dollars but anyway it wasn't it was good but What they found that was so interesting was the same areas in the brain light up when we experience rejection as light up uh, when we experience physical pain. The rejection pathways in the brain piggyback on the pathways responsible for physical pain. And that's why that expression hurt feelings related to rejection is the same in every language in the world. Rejection literally hurts. And when they did studies about it where they manipulated someone into feeling rejected and then they told them, you know, that actually wasn't real, it was a manipulation, it didn't make the hurt go away. Rejection is really resistant to reason. You can't reason it out that easily. You can, it'll still sting because we really get activated. It actually hurts us. And so it's important for people to know when these, certainly when the small ones happen, but when the, moder- when the moderate ones happen, and they're really reeling with that rejection and feeling it in a very big way, you're wired that way. That's why you're feeling it. In is everybody way. wired that Everyone way? Everyone is wired in that way. Now, look, we all have our little uh, emotional resilience differences and our, our, you know, fundamental differences in what we bring to the game, but we're all wired that way. In terms of evolution, the thing was that when we were hunter-gatherers, to be ostracized from the tribe was pretty much a death sentence. You could not survive alone. So we developed an early warning mechanism, which is what rejection is. People who experience rejection as more painful had the evolutionary advantage because then they would correct their behavior, not get ostracized, and survive to pass oh genes. that makes perfect sense absolutely it's also why i think there people
0: have the urge to fuck so much it's like the, you know the stargazer that wasn't really interested in sex his genes died out you know in the 1600s
1: well, or hers well, <laughs> yeah
0: or hers yeah be before that and i think people struggle so often um with you know uh an urge in them to not be monogamous or to not settle down. And I think if they can have some compassion for themselves and understand that this is a remnant of evolution, um, maybe they can have some more compassion for the the feelings inside themselves and not feel like it means they're a bad person because they want to um, cheat on their spouse. And I'm not talking about actually
1: going out and cheating uh, on your spouse, but those feelings inside well, actually, I mean, the science about that, if you're going to talk about that just for a minute, um, it's a big question about how monogamous we were uh, in our evolutionary past. And the the current theories are not so much. In other words, that there was, you know, there wasn't this where, oh, yeah, the men were out fucking whoever they wanted and the women were loyal to the man. There, there wasn't that. There was an evolutionary advantage for women, for the men not to know exactly um, who's the parent, because then they'll, you know, then they'll protect all the women in the tribe, you know, in that kind of sense. So mm-hmm. it's a, there's a big question about how monogamous we were, and there's a lot of wish that we were, you know, we would like to think that we were, you know, we we pair bonded from the time we, we got civilized and started with agriculture, but maybe not. Okay. Um, now I feel like a jackass. Let's, uh, no, I'm saying actually I'm supporting your point. That oh, you are? Dri- yes, because I'm saying that those drives, it doesn't make you a bad person. We you, we know that it is an evolutionary thing, that we're not necessarily monogamous. We're trying to squeeze a round uh, hole into a square peg, whatever, a square peg into a round hole, rather. Yeah. Well you know what I mean?
0: And, um, I'm so Freudian. It's not even funny. <laughs>
1: it's just the wrong shapes, but, um, <laughs>
0: my cock is actually square. So, uh, okay, well, there we are.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so I, I think it's a natural thought to have, as you said, we need to distinguish between the thought and the impulse and the behavior. What are some, some tips that, uh, you can give people for who are experiencing rejection? So one of the things that we do, and this is true, uh, unfortunately, in a lot of realms in terms of psychology, you know, we get the initial injury, and then we make it worse. So we get that little rejection, and then we start becoming really self-critical. We went on one date with a person, they weren't interested, and we start listing all our faults, everything that's wrong with us. We're not this enough, we're not that enough. In other words, our self-esteem was bruised. By the rejection to begin with, but then we take it and start stomping on it and kicking it and really bashing it into a pulp.
0: Maybe Uh, extrapolating it to other people are going to find out about this and they're going to, you know, think less of me. Absolutely. It's a whole party.
1: And the thing is that, you know, this is something we do psychologically that we would never do physically. You know, you would never sprain your leg and decide, now I'm going to run a marathon and make sure it's broken. (laughs) But psychologically, we do it all the time. We take a wound and make it worse. Why? Why do we do that? Because we have absolutely no awareness. And this is what's so great about your podcast. Your podcast brings so much awareness. To these kinds of issues. It brings so much humanity to them. It opens up. It destigmatizes. But how many people do that? How many podcasts do that? You know what I mean? It, it's We are so behind psychologically to where we are physically and just our basic thinking about it. Even when I wrote that book, Emotional First Aid, people said, well, you know, um, must we treat psychological wounds? And I'm like, I don't know. Must you treat physical ones? I mean, right. don't put up, you know, get your arm infected and let's lop it off. Why not? Why are you doing that? You know, in other words the fact that people have to ask that question is really just shows how far behind we are and it's ridiculous that's shocking to me uh, the ripples of untreated
0: emotional injury and dysfunction I-, I think there are few things in civilization that affect as many things as that um,
1: you know it I- i'm not even going to i'm i'm just going to leave it at that well i want to take the thought further because what if actually we started educating our kids um, about these things at a young age you know kids floss and brush their teeth at age four they know that they have to take care of their teeth at age four if they know they can, ta- they should take care of their teeth can't we teach them to take care of their emotions is that something we couldn't teach of course we could but we don't but just imagine if we did if we raised the generation of people who knew that feelings and emotions are things that need to be protected, need to be treated, need to be looked after in the same way their bodies need to be looked after and their teeth.
0: And to give them tools to understand when your brain is fucking with you and when it's a feeling that you need to pay attention to. Exactly. That is the biggest struggle I find is to say, okay, when is this just a trigger that's just my issue filtering reality and distorting it? And when is this my body i should be listening to because this is a person who is toxic and i need to set some boundaries or withdraw from from this experience absolutely uh so what are
1: some some tools for uh dealing with projection so with one, rejection? Of the, one of the first things i recommend is you have to stop the bleeding in other words you really have to argue with the self criticism um you know let's say it's in the romantic realm you know uh the that thing of you know it's not you it's me yes it's probably them because you know uh, romance is about a match it's about the lock and the key and square shapes and what have you and and the idea is you might not have fit what they're looking for it doesn't mean that you're not good in any way shape or form or that you're not sufficient in any way shape or form your lock didn't fit their key that's all it means, and you have to be aware not to take it further than that. Or if you didn't get hired by the employer, it could be for a 101 reasons. You know, and if your friends didn't like any of your vacation pictures, it could be they saw them, they smiled, and the next time they see you, they're going to say, oh, I love those pictures. But when they saw them, they were holding a toddler in one hand and car keys in the other, and their thumbs weren't long enough to press the like button. So you you really have to avoid making it worse. That's the most important thing with rejection. Don't make it worse, A, and understand why it hurts, because you're wired that way.
0: And, and the other thing I would suggest, too, especially when it comes to romantic rejection, is understand that there are huge amounts of people out there that cannot respond once they know that, they, that you see them. They're love avoidant, and if that is completely their own issue, um, because they may be into you at first because they love the attention, but then they realize, oh, now it's the point where there is something required of me. There's intimacy. I might be devoured by this person, and and they want to pull away. I see that so many times um, in, in people I corresponded with, um, in, in experiences I had in my 20s with all of a sudden like a switch turning off, and I couldn't stand to be around uh, a, a girl that was wanted more now and and I wanted to run and it breaks my heart that I didn't have the words to express to her then that you don't understand the reason I changed is because you're present and you're healthy and you're whole and this is scaring the shit out of me um so I wanted to put that out there to people who have been rejected it might be that you're too healthy for that person
1: and too present And that's scaring the shit out of them. That happens a lot. And actually, if things have been going well and suddenly something flipped and you don't understand what it is, but suddenly it was over from the other person's point of view, the number one suspect is what you just said. In other words, it is absolutely pointless to start looking about whether you did some fatal mistake. There was no fatal mistake. If you've been going out for three months and suddenly got closer and suddenly they ran, it's absolutely nothing to do with you 99% of the time. Uh, what are some other tips for dealing
0: with rejection? Are those the the big major ones?
1: There are a few others. Um, one of the things that happens when we get rejected is we get really angry and we get really aggressive and we're not aware of it, but we're likely to take it out on the innocent people. We're likely to come home to our families and be really irritable and, and snap their heads off. And so it's also very important to be aware that it's going to make you angry. It's going to make you feel aggressive. So look out for that because a lot of the times people don't. And they're not connecting the two because, oh, this small thing happened, and then this happened hours later, so who knows? And maybe it was just the traffic. No, it was probably the thing that made you feel crappy. Isn't it funny how it's never really about the thing in that moment? It's almost
0: always about some previous thing that we've buried and we're not processing. Right. It's it's crazy. Um, So given that, how do you deal, though, even though you're aware, okay, I'm irritable because of this, how do you... How do you decrease the flames in that fire?
1: Well, I, again, in the book, I give us a bunch of exercises and different things that people can do. Some of them are more a little bit more time-consuming than others. Some of them are writing exercises, and some people say, "I'm not going to take ten minutes to write." And I'm like, "Say, really?" And if you sprain your muscle, how? How long are you taking to go to, phys- to physical therapy three times a week until that's better? Why were you investing there, but you wouldn't invest in your in your emotional health or, you know, in your in your feelings? I don't understand why, you know, it's 10 minutes. I'm sorry, was that too much for you now? Because um, we can spare the 10 minutes, you know. It's just more about a skepticism that there's, we tend to think, well, there's nothing I can do about my feelings.
0: Imagine if in, in first or second grade we had kids write a- about that and they got to experience the catharsis of journaling or writing for just 5 minutes about, you know, something that bothered them on the playground. Uh, I can't tell you how many people have filled out surveys and had a cathartic moment where suddenly they're in tears. They've they've seen the words on the on the page or the screen that they've never verbalized you know or gotten out before and it's a transcendent moment in their life and I think if that can happen on just a, a survey on a website for a podcast imagine what it would be like if that was ingrained in your everyday life if that was something that you
1: saw the benefits of as a developing child how, how profound that could be well the survey it actually is not a simple thing because what you're doing when you're responding to the surveys you have to you have to go to the memory and then you have to organize your thoughts, and then you have to actually produce them in writing in a coherent fashion. So there's a lot of processing that goes on. That's why it's so effective. Oh. You know, It's not a direct, oh, I'll just say this. You, the, the thinking you have to go through, you have to be selective, you have to put it into some kind of order. I know in the survey, some people have a little bit more order and logic than others, more, more free-flowing. But still, even if it sounds free-flowing or reads that way, there was thought put into what I'm saying first, what I'm saying second. There is processing thing going on that 's why it 's so uh, I think evocative and that 's why it 's so useful wouldn 't it be awesome to have a show called
0: Emotional jeopardy? <laughs>
1: That would How be, do you
0: see that? What are the what
1: are the rounds there?
0: I, I don't know, but I just love the idea of people phrasing their trauma in the form of a question, or oh. being rejected for not putting it in the form of a of a question, and then the the spiraling that that would. I don't know. That God, that would be a fun live show to do. It. What is alcoholic point. parent, Alex? <laughs> uh, I'll take inappropriate touching for five hundred. <laughs> Oh, uh, so what are what are some other uh, <laughs>
1: tips for dealing
0: with rejection?
1: Um, so one other thing that rejection really impacts is we have this thing called a need to belong that again, another leftover from the tribal days, and it dislodges it, we feel unsettled. Now, for example, I say this to parents when they talk about their kids being bullied, uh, when the kids get bullied or. The kid didn't get invited to that birthday party, and they feel very, very rejected. And so the parents can talk about it with their kids, and they should talk about it with their kids, and they should problem-solve, and what can you do next time that happens, and what can you do about that, etc., etc. But one thing I suggest, because it, it dislodges and unsettles us in terms of our need to feel like we belong, one of the first things the parents should do is screw the homework that night, call a couple of very good friends, let's have them over. Let's remind you of the people who value you, who love you, who enjoy you, who think you're fun. Um, You know, reinstate that right away or as soon as possible. You know, and that is a very important thing to do, uh, you know, in terms of rejection. Like, remind yourself. Of the people you know who value you, remind yourself of the fact that you're loved. Um, they did even studies in which people, um, uh, they did <laughs> where people went through a memory of a rejection, and half the people had um, pictures of uh, of loved ones on the table, and half of uh, celebrities that they really, really loved, and they wanted to see who feels most emotional pain after that. The people with their beloved celebrities or the beloved Aunt Flossie, and Aunt Flossie won out. Mm. Over Justin Bieber and um, or whoever, <laughs> you know. In other words, <laughs> celebrities had no power whatsoever when it came to making us feel like we belong in some kind of way. What do you do
0: when you invite the kid's friends over and they all turn you down? They well, just... first
1: of all, go behind the scenes. Don't do that in front of the oh, child. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, I think you the... tell the
0: kid you're on your own, and you give him a little hobo stick and a and a kerchief. Yes, and, and you and, send him and, to the train tracks. Uh, right,
1: the tracks must must be around the corner. Just uh, hop a car. But, uh, but, you know, you can organize something like that. And if you can't do it for that moment, say, look, so those two people are going to come over on Saturday. We're going to have a great time. They're really looking forward to seeing you.
0: And I think the other important thing about that too is they can see that parent is in my corner. They're protecting me. They can feel that, that bond and
1: that they're being seen and their emotions are validated. Right. And this is the problem parents have a lot of the time. They want to do something for the children in these situations. They just don't know what. And you know, in this book, almost every piece of advice I give there, almost every exercise, because every chapter is divided into two parts: the what are the wounds, and then what are the treatments. And every treatment, pretty much, is something you can actually teach your kids. And the other thing that I like about that too is I think a lot of
0: parents think that just praising their kids is going to heal that wound. And while I'm sure that does help, I remember you know, being hurt or something and my parents saying, you know, oh, you know, you're a smart, handsome kid. And it just, while I, I I felt, it felt good to know that my parents cared that I was hurting. It also felt, I don't know if
1: patronizing is the right word, but it just felt like this isn't helping. Well, actually, the, those, that kind of praise, um, it doesn't help. And some kids, it will make them feel worse. In other words, if, if someone, if a child feels unattractive, say, and the parents go, Oh, but you're the most beautiful girl in the world, but she feels fundamentally unattractive. And her experience is that boys are not finding her attractive. Her parents telling her she's beautiful will make her feel worse because it'll just really remind her that that's not her experience. And so it's not only not helpful, um, it can make a kids feel worse because you're telling them the opposite of what they're feeling is in that moment.
0: And I think you then just think, oh, that person just doesn't know. So now I've got a parent that's clueless, that and, has and, no
1: clue as to what's attractive or what popular. And then you can't take is. anything else they say seriously either.
0: And it's got to be so human for that parent to want to do that. And I imagine 99% of parents don't know what to do beyond that beyond that because it's killing them that their child is hurting right um that's interesting that the yeah wow
1: what what other um tools for for rejection i think those are the you know those are i think those are a lot of things i think people can start with okay again in the chapter there's a few more there but i think that that the idea is to get some tools practice them and some of them overlap, for example. And I say, you know, it's in the same way that when we, when, when I have a headache, I know the over-the-counter medication that's going to work best for me, even though I have a choice of seven or eight probably, because I tried them. And I know this one tends to work best. The idea with these tools is to try them out and see what's most effective for you and what's most effective for your kids. And that's the one to reach for the next time this thing happens.
0: Is it fair to say that writing your feelings out or calling a trusted friend and talking about it is across the board a good tool
1: for just about any type of hurt or um anxiety? Writing yes, depends on the friend. You know, there are yeah. plenty of people who very who mean very well, but if you're just spilling your guts for half an hour and the response you get is ah, bummer. Not going to feel very satisfying. So you need somebody who's actually able to express the empathy statement, the sympathy statement, and really let you know that they get it beyond the monosyllabic responses or and, and I would add to that, too, is have a sense
0: of when it's beginning to drain that, that, that other person. And the, I don't know if, it, if there's any way you can quantify that, um, because each relationship is unique. But I do know that people have a limit to how much empathy and time... They have with somebody, especially when it tends to be the same issue coming up over and over again.
1: Well, I definitely address that in the book, and I give guidelines to people in, exactly in terms of that: how to deal with friends. And I and I actually have them write down. All right, how many times have you gone to this friend before? How many times have you gone to this friend with this issue? You have to spread that around. You know, you can't burden. Uh, friends you know in that sense, because it 's going to hamper the friendships number one, and number two it 's going to define that friendship in the way that that friendship is based on a victim model where you 're the victim and they 're the soother, and then it 's going to be hard to break out of that, um, and so spread it around or make it about entirely about them. Uh, for one time. And if it's a little bit difficult, both for you and to them, to make it about them, then it's gone a little too far because you're finding it hard to step out of that mode. It's a very important thing to be aware of, how it's impacting friends, family, whoever you tend to go to for support. You want to make sure you don't overburden them. Thank you so much, Guy.
0: And again, uh, Guy's book is called Emotional First Aid. Um, just want to read uh, an email and an awfulsome moment and then I will send you on your way. This uh, is actually a two-part email um, from a listener named Brooke. And I'm going to read the original email she sent to me. And um, she writes, uh hey, Paula, I just want to say thank you for the podcast. Uh, I only started listening uh, six months ago while browsing around. Uh, I was very interested in listening to it because I've suffered from depression and anxiety since I was in middle school. I'm now age 20. I love hearing other people's stories and finding a community of people who struggle with the same things that I do. I really connect to the surveys and hearing the, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. It really struck me because I found myself in that category. I've heard so many stories of children getting raped or molested, but when I started hearing people on the surveys talking about child-on-child sexual abuse and hearing you say that it is sexual abuse, it floored me. When I was about five years old, on two separate occasions, Two older neighborhood girls made me strip and touch myself, and they touched me too. The second time it happened, my mom walked in on the tail end of the incident, and she made the girls leave, and I was spanked and punished. I was so confused about what happened to me. I had no idea why I was being punished for something that I didn't want to do, and I even told my mom I didn't want to do it, but I never told her what exactly happened. Fifteen years later, this memory still haunted me, and whenever my boyfriend touched my vagina, I would have these flashbacks. I never understood why that would happen, because if I was sexually abused, my parents would have done something, right? But they didn't. Instead, I was punished, and occasionally my mom still brings up the incident, and it floods me with guilt yet again. And of course, I always say I don't remember that happening. Hearing people with similar stories on your podcast inspired me to recognize this memory head-on. I told my boyfriend who was super supportive and last week I brought this issue up to my therapist. We are now starting trauma treatment and she's giving me the tools to process this memory and how to be able to be sexual without feeling the guilt and shame as I did when I was five. Um, I owe you so much, Paul, for telling your listeners and bringing light to the fact that you don't need to be raped or molested by an old guy, although it helps, (laughs) couldn't resist, uh, to have experienced sexual abuse. I know I have not I have a not-so-easy couple of months ahead of me while dealing with this in therapy, but I'm excited to finally feel the way about sex that I'm supposed to and not feel shame about my vagina. Uh, Thanks again, Paul, for everything uh, that you do to take away the stigma of mental illness and bring light to these not-so-fun issues. Uh, And then I wrote her back and told her how much um, uh, her email touched me, no pun intended, And uh, asked for an update, because I love getting updates from people who are uh, charging head-on into uh, trying to heal. And so, um, six months later, she emailed me. got this about a week ago. Uh, Paul wanted to send you an update. My therapist and I have been doing some pretty in-depth trauma work. Part of the work was to let my mom know that I've been angry all these years because of her punishing me me after walking in on my abuse. My mom took my letter. Uh, I gave her very well. She was very apologetic, and she told me that she thought she prevented the abuse and didn't know that it had already happened. I felt so validated by knowing that my mom didn't blame me or think it was my fault. I finally feel like a weight has been lifted off of my shoulders. My therapist and I have also been working on how I can feel good about being sexual. What has made this process so much easier is that I have a fantastic boyfriend who is very willing to help me with the homework my therapist gives me. I finally feel like the woman I've always wanted to be and not the scared five-year-old girl who feels shameful of feeling sexual. Hearing other people's stories is so empowering and made me realize that I need to be easier and more loving to myself. I can give sympathy to other people's issues, but I somehow couldn't do that for myself. Um, thank you for helping to take away the stigma. And at the end of the day, if we can laugh at ourselves, then we aren't as fucked as we thought. Thank you for that, Brooke. Um, and finally, I want to read an Some moment uh, filled out by Monica. And she writes, On the hour drive to the latest psych ward my son is in, the theme music from The Twilight Zone is on repeat. The anxiety and dread magnifies with every turn and every footstep down the winding halls. Why are the psych wards always so far away from the entrance? I watch my finger go towards the doorbell on the wall that will tell my son's new caretakers that I am here to see him. The few seconds you wait are an eternity. My thoughts race with fear. How will he look? What will he say? Is this a hate you or love you uh, or who are you visit? The employee who opens the locked door always gives you the same look of suspicion as if I am there for nefarious purposes. Really? Really? I wait in the hallway by the nurse's office as they go and find my son. A patient slowly makes her way towards me, spinning in circles. Chubby hair uh, chubby hair in a ponytail, the prerequisite stretchy pants and fluffy slippers. I nod and say hello, careful to not make too much eye contact, just enough to not seem like a threat. I've done this before. I know the drill. I see my son coming down the hallway, shuffling his feet in his latest sedation. My anxiety slides down a notch. Shuffling feet means no violence. The young lady spins herself in small circles closer and closer to me. I don't sense a threat from her. My son is getting closer now and slowly lifts his head up. The young lady gets as close to me as she knows she can without the nurses yelling. As my son lifts his head higher, we make eye contact and he smiles, his old familiar familiar smile. The young lady touches my arm. I look down at her and she says, I'm a ballerina. I say, well, yes. Yes, you are. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on Friday.
1: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're
0: going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.